Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 28 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, August the 12th. First, I'll be talking to Chris Adams, the CEO and founder of the Ellis Adams Group and its international luxury hospitality consulting firm, EAG, which is currently opening 100 hotels during third quarter and third, fourth quarter of this year, partnering with Marriott International to transform locations for the Ritz-Carlton, St. Regis, Western and Renaissance, among others, all over the world. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter about Australia's inflation rate. But now let's talk to Chris Adams. Chris, uh, you're saying the hospitality industry must reinvent itself because labour shortages are still looming. Is that right? Uh, it is. I mean, I think it's it's obvious to everyone, no matter where you are in the U.S. or abroad, that labor is an issue. And it's amazing to me because obviously in hospi- the hospitality industry is, is struggling big time from a labor perspective. But it's not just the hospitality industry. There's many different markets that are struggling from a labor standpoint. But we are feeling it the most in hospitality. I think it's because it's one of those industries that impacts the most people, right? Whether you're going to a restaurant, a hotel, you're interacting constantly with others. And when there's the lack of that human interaction, when that the experience is lacking, you, you feel it most. And we are definitely feeling the effects of it now. How is the hospitality industry restructuring itself to handle this uh, labor loss post-pandemic? <laughs> That's the million dollar question, my friend. I think that I don't think there's a magic eight ball. I think everyone is is trying different things to figure out what the answer is. Some have thrown more money at, at individuals trying to get them to come back to the industry. Some have increased the the perks, I guess you can say, looking at better benefits. So there's a number of things, but the one thing I think that is holding true on those that are finding success, it's the ones that are finding ways to cultivate. A, a true foundation of looking after those that they bring on. It's, yeah, everybody wants more money. I think that's the easy answer. But I think when those individuals that come back to our restaurants, hotels, and whatnot, and they believe that we truly care about them, and we, we're looking out for their future beyond getting us through the shift and saying, where are we helping you get in three, five, 10 years for your career? 
and we truly care about you. Those are the ones that are finding success and getting people to come back to their to their hotels and restaurants. That's interesting because I mean, but the mindset of the people you're bringing back has changed, hasn't it, during the pandemic? Oh, that's that's what's drastically, happened. drastically, drastically. Look, and I said it before. When you look at the hospitality industry, I, I don't know anyone that at 10 years old said, man, I can't wait to grow up to be a bartender or a server. It's something that you you kind of stumble into and you don't realize that, wow, I actually enjoy this industry. Or maybe it's just something that I, I started doing while I was doing something else, while I was going to school for something else. And you realize 10, 15 years go by and you're in the hospitality industry. Well, in the course of that 15 years, the pandemic happens. You get furloughed, you get sent home. And now for two years, you realize, wait a minute, all my friends get to meet at five o'clock when they get home and, and, and crack a beer open to talk about their day. They get to spend time on the weekends having a barbecue together. They get to enjoy the holidays with their family because those are things that you don't typically see if you're working full time in the hospitality industry. You're working nights, weekends and most holidays. And I think it changed the value of their time and it changed the value of the dollar for them. So as a, as a result, the mindset changed, which means we have to adjust as those that own hotels, restaurants, and whatnot, to meet them where they're at, to help make the, the workplace a, um, more comfortable for them and, and a better fit for what their life is, is supposed to be. Okay, and to actually actually have them bring them on as part of a team. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the, what I was saying earlier about cultivating an environment where we care about their livelihood and their future and not just they're filling a cog for us to get us through the day, a shift, or, you know, the month that we're slammed. I'm fascinated, though, by the design of hotels, and whether that's going to be changing with the pandemic, and whether the centuries-old hotel lobby layout has to change, and what the future of hotels could look like. Couldn't agree with you more, and I think we're going to continue to see the evolution of the design of spaces. I think we're going to see one thing this has done, everything that's happening now was already in progress. What the pandemic did was speed everything up. So everything that was already in progress and happening, now it just forced things into motion much quicker. And that goes back to design as well. We're seeing technology take a bigger role in hospitality, which we've always lagged in, in, in the technology sector. And now you're seeing it come to the forefront faster, which it needed to anyways. And I think you're going to start seeing designs change. There's a lot of dead space in lobbies of hotels of where the check-in process takes place. And I think now with technology and the use of it, we're going to be able to pull back on some of that space to make it more functional and change the check-in experience. And I think that's just one of many things you're going to see from a design perspective that's going to continue to alter and change over time. It's going to take a while for us to get there, but I think you're going to see it on new builds, obviously, first. And then we'll start to retrofit as, you know, owners see the, the ROI on, on making those changes. How could the check-in experience change? Well, I think you're seeing more and more from, you know, you're looking at apps, right? If we start to use apps properly and really use it the right way, we can know when you're coming to our hotel long before you ever get there. You can check in someone. We can have almost a lobby ambassador greet you at the door for the human touch to say, welcome. We're happy to have you. But we don't need you to come stand at a desk and spend 15 minutes staring at a computer. You can walk straight to your room and we can have somebody escort you if you want. But I think the, the app technology is going to help really revolutionize that check-in experience. But you'll have a virtual hotel entrance. You really will. I mean, and I think you're going to start seeing hotels be treated a little bit more like um, entertainment venues that are really focused on the community. 
right? You've got the you've got the restaurant, the coffee shop that everybody goes to. You've got the dry cleaners that are there at the at the the new hotel, and it just happens to have some amazing master bedrooms sitting above it. Not to mention the cinema and stuff like that as well. Absolutely, I think it's when you start opening your mind to, and that's the toughest part. Like with anything, is change, right? When you've done something a certain way for so long, the idea of changing that is the most difficult part. But when you really allow yourself to open your mind to the capabilities and possibilities of what it could be, um, it's endless of what the new hotel could look like. And I believe what it will look like as we continue to evolve through this. Well, the future of hospitality in the US, I mean, why do they need to cultivate a new culture for customers and staff? Look, I mean, the hospitality industry is is known for, <laughs> for addiction issues, for alcohol problems. It, it is a tough industry. It is an industry that I don't know that it, it's not for everyone. You know, if you don't legitimately have a heart for others, hospitality is not probably not a good fit for you. It's long hours. It's thankless in many ways. The only time people, you know, a, a customer at your restaurant says something to you is if they're pissed off about something many times. So it's, it's a difficult place to be when you're working in, in that environment. You're treated many times, it has been as a servant, more than you're there to serve them and, and be a part of an amazing experience and create memories for individuals, whether you're helping um, prepare and host for a wedding or a bat mitzvah or whatever it might be, you're creating memories for others. And I think our ability to change the way that we treat our teams and the way we view them and look at them and the way we support them, it's a necessity for the long-term growth and stability of this industry. But uh, there would also have to be a change in the customer relations, wouldn't there? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that, I think it starts, I always say, nothing can change until it starts with me first, right? So if I own the restaurant or the hotel, I have to change the culture within my team first. I think once I begin to change the culture of my team and those individuals that working within the spaces that I have control of, then once that happens, I can start making steps to change the behavior of the guests that are coming into my spaces. Can I change it for every restaurant? Absolutely not. But if I can do it within mine, and hopefully it starts to spread from that, then we can start to hopefully produce change. All of this is quite massive for careers in hospitality Uh, how does someone uh, climb from being a pool boy to a partner in a hotel (laughs) a a lot of hard work realizing look i think once you figure out what your passion is and where it intersects with what your natural talents are is when you start to find uh, gold within your life and that's when you start to find happiness it's not attached to a dollar amount it's not attached to the salary you're getting you finally figured out your purpose and i think once you figure out your purpose and that intersects with your passion, intersects with those talents, you can make real strides. And I was fortunate enough that I figured out early on in this industry what I was supposed to be doing. And I worked my tail off. I I focused on making sure that I put myself in great positions around amazing leaders. I, I listened, I learned, and I took every opportunity and advantage that was thrown at me and caught some really good breaks along the way to get us to the point that we are now is in our companies continuing to, to grow at, at an alarming rate, to be honest with you, which is, which is great. But, but there has to be very much a mindset shift on the, in the person in the industry. Uh, yeah, there is. You have to be willing to look, I think with anyone, if you're going to, if you want to take on the responsibility of being a, a business owner, an entrepreneur, there is a certain mindset you have to have to be in that space. And it has, you have to be willing to 
live for a certain amount of time, like most people aren't willing to live, so you can live the rest of your life like they can't, right? That's a saying I've heard many times. And there was many, many years in the growth process of my company that it wasn't easy. There were times in the very beginning when I didn't have investors, I didn't have partners, I slept on other people's couches, I didn't have a place to go, but I fought hard because I believed in it. I took it of every advantage that I possibly could of the times when I was with companies like Ritz Carlton and really learning from that brand to get us to the place that we are now. And it was, it was tough. Uh, there was many times I think where most would, would probably have thrown in the towel and said, it's just, I can't do it. It's not worth it. And we kept pushing forward. And, and thankfully, things started turning around to get us to the point where we are now. Right. So what, what would be your tips for CEOs of hotels? Um, <laughs> it, you know, that's a, that's a great question. It's a tough question because I think every hotel group has, a, they have a different forecast of what they're trying to get, right? Their, their ROIs are different. Some are looking to flip an asset. And they're treating it more like real estate. Some are really trying to build hospitality brands. So I think, one, you have to determine first what your end game is and what your goal is. And then uh, I think right now with the position that we're in in hospitality, your ability to, to shift where you're at, put pause on what's the P&L look like for just a moment. And we have to be great stewards of our businesses. Do not get me wrong. I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that we can't care about the financial part of it. But we better invest a little bit into our people right now and make sure that we build back the foundation of what we need to make hospitality work. And hospitality has always been and always will be about people. And if we don't have the people to execute what we're supposed to be doing in hospitality, we will continue to struggle. And so if we want to make sure long-term we can be successful and we can have real ROIs on our assets, we need to invest in our people right now so we can make sure that we have the, uh, the success long-term. Well, Chris, quite illuminating, and I'm sure everyone will be listening to it quite closely. And thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you. And now let's talk to KPMG economist, Sarah Hunter. Well, Sarah, Jim Chalmers says inflation will reach close to 8% and we can expect no pay rises till 2024. What's your view about this? Uh, so I think on inflation, uh, I broadly agree that the headline rate of inflation is going to to keep on rising through uh, the back half of this year. I think that there's you know, effectively there's some base effects in that and some other things that are likely to unwind that will drive that up as well. So fuel prices right now, for instance, are significantly higher than where they were a year ago. That will be true in uh, the September quarter and that will be partly true in the December quarter as well. So that as a base effect, if you like will stay in the inflation calculation. Uh, we're also likely to see the unwinding of the fuel, the temporary cuts of fuel excise duty. The, the government has sort of signaled that they're looking at pulling back on those sorts of things. And also uh, we've got you know, the resetting of electricity prices and, and other things that will come through in the second half of the year. So overall, I, I do agree. I think that headline inflation has got a bit further to go. But I must admit, I, I do think that uh, that 7.75% that was flagged in his statements does look a little bit on the high side for me. I think we might hit hit a peak that's lower than that but notwithstanding it's still obviously a very high rate of inflation in terms of um, pay rises I mean I think your references to real pay and real wages rather than nominal wages nominal wages are going up they're just not keeping pace with inflation right now and when we get the data in a couple of weeks time 
for the June quarter, I think that that's what we'll find again, that nominal wages will have gone up by less than 6.1%. And, and so they'll be still lagging behind inflation. But, uh, nominal wages, the dynamics there are different, and they do tend to move a little more slowly. And for, for many people, for instance, who've uh, signed enterprise bargaining agreements in the last couple of years, they won't have signed an agreement that means their wages are going at 5 6% or more in a year. So they will definitely be lagging behind. Uh, and for others, even the national minimum wage increase, uh, the award wage increases that have just kicked in, they are also, you know, we know those are going a, a bit behind inflation now as well. So uh, yes, I broadly agree, real wages probably going to be lagging behind inflation. Uh, sorry, nominal wages lagging behind inflation. So we are looking at real wage cuts, at least through the next 12 months, probably trickling into 2024. Right, okay. But uh, you seem to think that inflation might be peaking. Is that right? Well, I think that inflation peaking uh, through the second half of 2022, assuming we don't have any further shocks to commodity prices globally. So, you know, we know where the oil price is right now. It's actually a bit lower than where it peaked earlier in the year, for instance, assuming that remains the case, assuming other commodity prices, the building materials and food prices as well, assuming they don't kick up further from where they are now. And many of those are are already coming back down. Yes, it, it does look as though in year on year terms, so the inflation headline inflation rate that we all look at that I think that it's it's reasonable to expect that to peak in the second half of this year and if we look at say month to month or quarter to quarter momentum in prices so that you know the change in the price level from one quarter to the next it, that did slow from the uh, March quarter into the June quarter I think it's possible that we'll see further slowing or at the very least I don't expect to see an acceleration through the next six months. The issue though too is that we don't know what's going to be happening with Ukraine we don't know what's going to be happening with COVID. Absolutely no there are risks to all of this. Uh, so we, we could see a reversal in some of those commodity price trends. Uh, we could also see um, further you know, widespread outbreaks of COVID in China that really disrupt supply chains further and put further upward pressure on, on prices for manufactured goods that come through that way. So yeah, it, everything is possible. As ever, as an economist, we're only ever making forecasts based on the information we have to hand at the moment. The information we have to hand at the moment, it does look as though inflationary pressures, momentum are is peaking and, and perhaps coming back down, as, as I say, as you move quarter to quarter. But that doesn't take away from the fact that, um, number one, we're still a long way above uh, the inflation target that the RBA has. Generally speaking, that's true around the world in many, many countries. Um, and there's a lot to get back there. And if we're even if we've got inflation coming down from, say, a peak of seven, maybe even a bit above seven percent, um, even if it does get back down to four or even three percent next year, that's still comfortably above target. So there's, you know, it can be getting better, but it cannot be completely solved as a problem. There are two different things and two different transitions that we're obviously going to have to go through. Which would indicate, though, by your thoughts, that that would say that the interest rate rises would peak here as well? No, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think that you have to unpack inflation into its drivers. And I think particularly think about, you know, what is in con- uh, you know, what is in control of the RBA and what isn't and what um, where those pressures are coming from. So at the moment, a lot of what we're seeing in terms of inflationary pressures is coming from supply side shocks that are true supply side shocks. So particularly thinking about the commodity market outcomes at the moment uh, related to the conflict in Ukraine. Also, uh, to, uh, sort of relatedly thinking about what's happening in China around uh, supply chains and their transition through to uh, uh, living with COVID or a, a zero, you know, a, and how they reconcile zero COVID with that, that that situation will resolve itself in terms of the conflict with Ukraine and, and supply of commodities. It, 
I think it is reasonable to expect that the world will uh, learn to adapt to a new normal where perhaps there is some restriction on supply of commodities and other products by Russia into global markets, but we'll learn to adapt to that. And so inflationary pressures coming from that will dissipate and, and go away. That's not the thing the RBA uh, and other central banks are, are worried about, really, in terms of their primary concern. Their primary concern is inflationary pressures that are coming through their domestic economy, particularly through wages pressures, but also through uh, you know, price setting behavior from businesses and, and other things like that. Those are the pressures they have to worry about. And if we have wages moving at the moment. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's say, you know, 4% a year is a figure that seems to be coming through. Uh, from the private sector, it includes super and other things like that. But if that's the, the uprating that people are getting, that as a, a pace of wages growth isn't really consistent with a 2 to 3% target for headline inflation. Productivity is not growing at 1.5% a year. So that sort of quite simple break it down equation that Governor Lowe likes to use of inflation plus productivity giving you real wages growth. Uh, real, you know, wages uh, are potentially going to start to heat up and run hotter and stronger than would be consistent with inflation being back in the target. That, that's really what the RBA are responding to. That is a product of the strength of demand in the economy and, and how strong the recovery from COVID has been. Um, and that's what they're you know, really lifting rates to respond to. So I don't think that they're done yet. Um, I don't think that uh, the cash rate at 1.35% is, uh, is the neutral rate. I think it, it does need to go up higher. And it's to tackle those sort of domestic fundamental pressures, if you like, which are separate to, if at least partly related to, some of the supply-driven uh, inflation that we're seeing come through the system as well. So where do you see uh, the cash rate picking it? It's hard to put a precise number on it, of course, but I think you know, from signaling from the RBA and obviously it's the board's decision on where they take the cash rate, it definitely seems reasonable to think that by the end of this year, we're looking at a cash rate maybe 2.75%, maybe 3%, something in that ballpark, maybe only 2, 2.5%, but definitely in that band. And, and clearly, if you look at market pricing, it's coming down towards that level. It's now only just a touch above 3%. So that's where the markets think it's going to get to. Many economists like me are, are somewhere in that ballpark. And, uh, you know, there's always uncertainty. So I think we're there's pretty close alignment now, I'd say, amongst the professional where we get to over the near term. In terms of the peak, uh, for me, I don't see it being 
too much above that. I think by the time we get into next year, and you can you know, perhaps see hints of this in some of the data already, we can certainly see it hints of it in some of the data from other countries where they've started rate rises early and so they're further through the cycle. Then you'll see spending momentum will start to peak and even fall back. The housing market has obviously turned. So we've got house price declines now. That will dampen down housing market activity, which is what matters for GDP. The number of sales, uh, the income for real estate agents, then the number of you know, conveyancing contracts that run through bank activity, all of these things very closely related to the volume of sales in that market. And we're also going to start to see it coming through residential construction activity again it may not fall back so much because there's a strong uh, sort of pipeline solid pipeline to get through but there's not as much new activity flowing in and of course discretionary consumer spending as well all being uh, very impacted now by rate rises but also cost of living pressures so i think by the time we start to see 23 uh, move through 2023 growth in the economy will really start to slow sharply it'll take that heat away those uh, inflationary pressures away that are domestic in in origin and the rba won't have to go too too much beyond where they get to at the end of this year. So I think yeah, a, a peak in the cash rate first half of next year for me is I think where we'll end up. And then uh, we'll see after that, uh, another cycle will emerge, I've no doubt, because economies always cycle is what they do. And, but uh, that would suggest, though, that in 2023, the economy will be a lot slower. The pace of growth? Yes, definitely. I think that that's, that's always almost inevitably going to be the case anyway, anyway, because 2022 is still flattered, if you like, the pace of GDP growth, very flattered by uh, what 2021 looked like, in particular, the Delta lockdowns. So if you're measuring how much GDP is this year, how much it's increased relative to 2021, you get a very flattering base just uh, because for three, four months of 2021, half the country was shut up at home and couldn't go out and be normal and spend in the usual way. Way. So 22 was always going to look good. 23 was always, assuming we got no other lockdowns and we didn't have to deal with any of that uh, disruption, 23 was always going to be slower. But I think there's an additional layer on top of that, which is the impact of um, monetary tightening um, and fiscal supports unwinding as well. Pandemic supports, again, naturally unwinding another um, headwind for the economy, if you want to call it that. But I would say, uh, you know, actually welcome because it means that we're getting back to something that looks like more normal. More normal, but a so, certainly slower growth. Indeed, yeah. Okay, well, Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the Australian Council of Trade Unions has accused the Reserve Bank of deliberately laying the groundwork for a recession due to its whatever-it-takes attitude to bringing inflation back to target. The allegation forms part of a broader call by the union movement to ditch a three-decade-old monetary policy framework whereby a politically independent central bank has primary responsibility for ensuring low and stable inflation. Instead, the ACTU wants a government, as part of the upcoming Jobs and Skills Summit, to consider greater Commonwealth involvement in managing inflation by increasing its role in the economy, including through regulating housing credit, cancelling the stage-through tax cuts, and raising high income and company taxes when the economy is too strong. The ACTU released a policy paper on Tuesday, in which it argued for full and secure employment to be the September Jobs Summit's top macroeconomic goal. The report calls for the Reserve Bank of Australia to pursue full employment in balance with its inflation target while acting in coordination with the federal government to achieve its goals. 60 people earn more than $1 million yet paid no tax in 2019-20. Australia's highest earners live in Perth and the country's lowest incomes have been recorded in regional New South Wales. Eight of the nation's highest earning postcodes were in Sydney while five of the lowest earning postcodes were in regional New South Wales. 
the Australian Taxation Office's latest taxation statistics are based on the tax returns of almost 15 million Australians for 2019-20. Analysis of the data by the Australia Institute reveals there were 60 Australians who earned more than $1 million in that financial year who did not pay a cent of income tax compared to 66 a year before. On average, these 60 individuals earned $3.5 million each. Managing a tax fair is an allowable tax deduction. Some of those who earned more than a million dollars but paid no tax claimed this deduction. And Labor's pledge to fully fund an increase in pay for aged care workers could cost the already stretched Commonwealth budget an extra $3 billion a year, with the government endorsing a pay rise for the sector's significantly undervalued workforce. The Fair Work Commission is weighing up a union case for a pay rise of up to 25% for a sector where workers can earn as little as $22 an hour. Low pay in the sector operates as a barrier to staff recruitment. And Australia will see 11% of jobs lost to automation by 2050, according to the latest jobs forecast for the APAC region by global research and advisory firm Forrester. On a broader Asia-Pacific perspective, Forrester forecasts that working populations in the five largest economies in the region, India, China, South Korea, Australia and Japan, are more at risk due to physical robot automation than Europe and North America. And by 2040, Forrester forecasts that 63 million jobs are expected to be lost to automation, with more than 247 million jobs expected to be in jeopardy across industries that are more susceptible to automation, such as construction and agriculture. And one in five mortgage holders or an equivalent of 551,000 homeowners, would struggle to meet their repayments if their home loan rates were to rise by three percentage points, a new poll shows. The market forecasts the cash rate will be 3.3% by March next year. Comparison site Finder, which conducted the survey, also found that around 145,000 homeowners who were struggling significantly would consider selling if their mortgages rose to that extent. And Australian consumer confidence has fallen to levels seen during COVID-19 and the global financial crisis, but is well above recessionary levels. Confidence fell 3% to 81.2 in August, according to the latest Westpac Melbourne Institute of Consumer Sentiment Index. Since the peak in November 2021, the index has fallen every month for a cumulative decrease of 22 And Australian motoring executives have launched a secret campaign to delay our moving to electric vehicles and unpick a key section of our climate change plan. It was created by the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, the peak body representing 39 auto brands. Basically, it would see the industry's voluntary emissions scheme become the national standards. New passenger cars sold in 2030 would still pump out an average of at least 98 grams of CO2 a kilometre. This would ensure Australia's car industry maintains some of the weakest carbon emission rules in the world. Plus, it would set us back significantly in our fight to slash emissions. The transport sector is our third largest source of greenhouse gases. The campaign started last week to shape public discussion and position the auto industry as a trusted voice in the moderate middle of a climate debate. But behind the scenes, they are lobbying policymakers to adopt rules that would preserve petrol and hybrid cars that are the main business of the biggest manufacturers, such as Toyota, for decades to come. The strategy mirrors aspects of the approach used overseas by car manufacturers such as Toyota, which combines public statements about environmental stewardship with behind-the-scenes pressure on policymakers to weaken regulation of car emissions. Toyota formed Team Japan in that nation along with Subaru, Mazda, Kawasaki and Yamaha to defend the place of petrol and hybrid cars in the face of competition from electric vehicles. Toyota last year refused to commit to a Glasgow Declaration pledge to phase out fossil fuel cars by 2040, saying an environment suitable for promoting full zero emission transport has not yet been established in many parts of the world. Ask about the strategy, FCAI Chief Executive Tony Webber said the industry group wanted to see significant emission cuts in the sector, but there were constraints around the number and cost of low emissions cars available. 
Meanwhile, a new report has found that if an emissions cap on car makers that was proposed by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had been implemented, it would have saved consumers $5.9 billion in fuel costs. And Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke has signalled Labor will legislate to stop employers slashing wages by getting pay deals acts, slamming the tactic as a rort that is against the national interest. In a significant speech on Monday, Mr Burke said he is disgusted employers are even attempting the heavy-handed approach that on face value I cannot see how this tactic can possibly be justified. Mr Burke said the ability of employers to cut pay and conditions by applying unilaterally terminate enterprise agreements will be on the agenda at next month's job summit when the government seeks a consensus between unions and business on how to fix a broken bargaining system. The Minister's comments, the strongest by the government on the issue, signal Labor will seek to scrap the unilateral termination provisions as part of a package of industrial relations changes to be introduced into Federal Parliament by the end of the year. In his address to the Australian Industry Group conference in Canberra, Mr Burke criticised a bid by the country's largest tugboat operator, Switzer, to terminate its enterprise agreement with maritime unions. Switzer's application sparked strikes across the nation's ports by unions, which are highlighting the dispute to lobby Labor to ditch the termination provisions. And Qantas has asked its senior executives and managers to join a new contingency program that would see them leave their jobs and work as ground handlers up to five days per week for three months. In a note to staff, the airline's chief operating officer, Colin Hughes, said Qantas would recruit at least 100 managers, adding there was no expectation that you will opt into this role on top of your full-time position. While Qantas executives and managers have previously worked at airports during peak periods, the extensive new program demonstrates the breadth of the worker shortage issues confronting the airline over the longer term. As part of the program, staff will sort and scan bags and drive tugs, the vehicles used on the airport tarmac, moving luggage onto aircraft and between terminals. Qantas acts some 1,700 ground-handling jobs in the depths of the COVID-19 pandemic, a decision the Federal Court found was in breach of the Fair Work Act. The airline is appealing the matter in the High Court, but ongoing COVID-19 infections and a tight labour market have prevented the airline from fully staffing operations since, since the resumption of domestic and international travel. An Australian and New Zealand banking group and the government's Clean Energy Financing Commission have teamed up to offer $200 million of discounting financing to business customers to invest in activities designed to cut their carbon emissions. In the latest sign that banks recognise commercial opportunities in businesses pushing towards net zero emissions as part of broader environmental, social and governance reporting, the CEFC and ANZ will provide cheap loans for a wide range of activities, with the two organisations splitting the costs. The program is an extension of the CEFC's co-financing work across sectors, which has said it so far allowed financial institutions to provide more than 5,500 asset loans to business borrowers Australia-wide. Under the new plan with ANZ, the CEFC and the bank will contribute equally towards a 0.5% discount on loans of up to $5 million, if businesses demonstrate the funding is for environmental progressive investment. The CFC said in a statement the investments would fall under a broad umbrella of initiatives aimed at reducing emissions, ranging from using more renewable energy to buying energy-efficient precision agricultural equipment, recycling technologies and purchasing electric vehicles. And BHP is settling in for a quiet pursuit of Australian copper major Oz Minerals after its initial $25 a share bid for the company was rejected out of hand by the South Australian miner. BHP's $8.4 billion offer for Oz Minerals is a fresh salvo in Chief Executive Mike Henry's bid to switch the mining giant's focus to future-facing commodities after BHP failed to capture Canadian nickel play Noront Resources this year after a heated bidding war with iron ore billionaire Andrew Forrest. On Monday, BHP flexed its balance sheet in a move to expand its copper and nickel portfolio, lobbing a $25 a share cash bid for Oz Minerals. The move delivered 
to the Oz Minerals board after the close of the market on Friday was rejected by its target, with the SA headquartered copper miner describing the offer as unsolicited, conditional and non-binding, despite BHP initially hoping to stitch up a friendly takeover through a scheme of arrangement. BHP said on Monday it still hopes a friendly tie-up can be arranged with its bid conditional on Oz Minerals, allowing due diligence and a unanimous recommendation from the board. And petrol and diesel supplier Ampol has made its entry into electricity supply, opening its first amp-charge electric vehicle charging site in the inner city Sydney suburb of Alexandria with a pilot offer to household customers in the wings. Chief Executive Matt Halliday said Ampol had made it clear it was looking to test an offer in retail electricity and had now secured its energy retailing licence. The Alexandria Amp Charge site at the Ampol Woolworths Metro Go site is the first of 120 electric vehicle fast charging sites to be delivered at Ampol forecourts across Australia by December 2023. It is part of the initial rollout of five pilot sites at Ampol service stations, with fast charging infrastructure also to be installed at sites in the Brisbane suburb of Castledean, North Mead in Greater Western Sydney, in Altona North, southwest of Melbourne, and in the Perth suburb of Belmont over the coming month. Halliday said the first Amp Charge site also represents the first stage of Ampol's shift to position itself as a provider of electricity for customers to be supplied at home or in places such as shopping centres as well as on traditional service station sites. The plan to move into electricity supply was flagged by the former Caltex Australia last May as part of the company's decarbonisation strategy, which also includes opportunities in hydrogen, gas, biofuels and emissions reductions. Ampol is committed to spending $100 million on future energy sources for customers as it shifts its portfolio to suit growing demand for lower emissions products. Each site will be capable of delivering charge to an electric vehicle at up to 150 kilowatts and have the capacity to charge at least two vehicles concurrently. They'll be powered by solar panels and solar battery storage systems with excess energy from EV chargers offset by large-scale renewable energy certificates. The move comes amid lagging uptake of electric vehicles in Australia compared to other advanced economies, with only 2% of new car sales last year being electric. A lack of incentives, purchase EVs and the absence of vehicle emission standards have contributed to a poor choice of models on the market in Australia and high costs. And subscription video on-demand platform Stan has secured a major new content pipeline from Sony's Pictures International, locking down a set of new scripted dramas and a back catalogue of TV shows and movies. The new deal will give Stan exclusive first run of new Sony TV shows, including Bob Odenkirk, starring in the adaptation of the novel Straight Man, Anthony Mackie in Twisted Metal, based on the video game of the same name, Tiana Okoy in Panhandle, and Sophie Charlotte in Passport to Freedom. The profit reporting season continues. National Australia Bank, the country's biggest business lender, recorded an unaudited net profit of $1.85 billion for the three months through June. No comparable figure was disclosed, but it compares with a profit of $1.65 billion reported by the bank a year ago. Commonwealth Bank has reported an 11% jump in full-year cash profit to $9.595 billion on the back of strong home lending and lower bad debts even as interest rates begin to rise. Suncor revealed full-year cash profits had fallen 36.7% to $673 million. Net profit after tax fell 34.1% to $681 million on statutory basis, battered by flooding and falling investment markets. Vault Bank's bottom line loss soared to $84.3 million in the 12 months to the end of March, according to an annual financial statements lodged last week with regulators. The operating performance was markedly worse than the 2021 net loss of $38 million. 
Volk surrendered its banking licence last month after it failed to complete a $200 million capital raising earlier this year. Graincore has boosted FY22 profit guidance by 11 to 12% on outstanding execution across its business areas and expectations for the East Coast Australian crop in 2022-23. Horizon has reported group underlying EBITDA of $1.46 billion for the year ended June 30, down 1% on the prior year. Revenue for the year increased 2% to $3.07 billion. The company's statutory net profit after tax fell 15% to $513 million, down from $607 million in FY21. On an underlying basis, MPAT dropped 2% to $525 million. News Corp reported 31% jump in earnings before interest depreciation and amortisation to US $1.67 billion for the full year, up from $1.3 billion in the previous year. REA Group's revenue grew by 26% to $1,170 million. EBITDA, including associates, increased by 19% to $674 million, and net profit grew to $371.7 million. Megaport revenue rose 40% to $109.7 million in financial 2022, from $78.3 million a year earlier. Dex's convenience retail REIT recorded a statutory net profit of $82.6 million, 11.9% up from last year. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Redleaf CEO Ian Schubach about how to build the post-pandemic workplace. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory about the economic slowdown in China and its implications for Australia. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 